Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, Craig McCaw. We'll be talking about recording and working on hit albums and the business part of the business and much more as we get a perspective about the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. Craig McCaw was a key part of the very successful 60s band, The Poppy Family, with Susan and Terry Jacks, whose music is an essential part of the Canadian musical landscape. So thanks for joining me today, Craig. How are you? I'm uh, great. Uh, thanks, Dan, for having me on. It's uh, mm-hmm. I really, really just discovered what you folks are doing, and it's great to hear all these uh, these people that I've followed for so many years and get some insight onto what's uh, what, what's been going on with them. You know. Well, I appreciate that. We're trying to have an extended discussion and and get into some deeper things and ask you know and and the personal side of it too. You know, like a lot of times you you know about the discography and the recording and stuff, but you don't know what the person maybe perhaps was going through at the time, for example, or or how they reflect on it. So those are important too. Oh, cool. Sure. Moved to uh, Kelowna of all places when I was. Uh... When I was 13, I was all set to take guitar lessons at Ward Music in Vancouver, but then we moved to Kelowna, oh. and uh, so guitar stuff got delayed for a little while. It was a sleepy little town. It was 25,000 people. When we moved there, started to play a little bit in in uh, in a band called the Shadracks, actually, that we put together. Mm. And uh, also, I was very lucky, too, to meet a guy called John Tanner, who's known down here as Jolly John Tanner. He was a radio personality for many, many years. But we met in drafting class up there, and oh. I had some Ventures albums that he didn't have. He had the uh, the Saturday night uh, evening show on the radio still while he was in high school. And I used to, uh, um, I'm revealing this here now, I used to uh, fill my uh, my empty guitar place case with uh, beer bottles and hitchhike down to the radio station. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and then we'd wait until he signed off, which was yeah. at about 1230 in the uh, late night for Cologne in those days, and then go through the junk bin. And they would get all these 45s that they would uh, bring in that they uh, thought were unsuitable to play in Kelowna, and it was just full of wonderful wow. stuff like uh, Hideaway by Freddie King and on and on and on, you know. Mm. And um, so that's how we got access to lots of the great music that you would never get to hear in Kelowna. There's lots of country music up there, which is which is nice music too, but I was uh, thirsty for rock and roll. Well, the Shadrachs got playing around for a little bit, and... Um, the very first thing I ever recorded was in the uh, in the control. Well, they had a little little uh, talk studio there, and uh, we got the Shadrachs uh, together, which is Rick Masalem, I think Bob Verge, Clive Spiller in those days, and uh, went in and uh, tried to do some recording in there. And uh, oh. I, I came up with a, it was all guitar bands, of course, in those days, yeah. Adventures in the Shadows and blah blah blah. So I came up with the idea of putting the Breeze and I and Peter Gunn together in this sort of a, a guitar extravaganza kind of thing. And we went in there and cut it. It sounded, sounded very roomy and very bad. So I came up with this goofy idea of putting blankets over the amplifiers. Mm. Uh, and that seemed to kind of do it. And that got actually a surprising amount of play in the Okanagan Valley. And I found out later that, uh, you know, there's no there's no records being made in, up there in those, those early days. Mm. Um 
but uh, I guess a quarter-inch tape got shipped around to the Kootenays and stuff, so they were playing that up there, oh. too, which was kind so of So what fun. year would that have been? Oh, boy, that must have been 63, maybe. Okay. Maybe yeah, 64, so. you know, in, yeah. in around there, yeah. When we were living up there, met, um, you know, the chessmen came up to play. Yeah. And uh, um, Terry Jacks and Guy Sobel were, uh, you know, kind of the main guys in that band. So we used to occasionally have parties at my house afterwards, and that's how I got to know them. That's how you met Terry Jacks. I was going to ask you the connection and then how you ended up getting from Kelowna back down to Vancouver. Well, we, um, we were uh, playing... All around uh, BC, but not not down in Vancouver. But we um, got connected with Les Vote. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember all this stuff somewhere along the line, and uh, we might have, you know, we might have actually done a couple of um, appearances on the Let's Go Show, which is the the you know, famous famous CBC variety yeah, show that happened yeah. in the afternoon yeah. and went all across Canada. I mean, so many bands, you know, the Guess Who and all that uh, stuff, got yeah. there, they start there. So we might have done a couple of stints on that, or maybe not. We might have gone straight into the Let's Go Review, which is a thing that Les put around, which was um, had a bunch of people from the TV show, uh, you know, the Fund Classics with yeah. all those uh, great players and Mike Campbell, Julian Russell, Susan Pesklovitz. And, um, you know, some other players and, and, uh, we, we would open cause we, we were the grunts. So we, we just went, went in and did the opening set and stuff on the first gig partway through the, uh, the review set, I heard this amazing R and B singer and she was just ripping rescue me you know the fontella yeah. bass song into little pieces and spitting it out cool. and it turned out that was susan and i know yeah. i just couldn't believe that voice so yeah yeah when i first met susan she was singing uh just amazing r&b actually but then eventually that morphed and you became you started playing with the uh, with susan and terry right like the, the the video that i saw the interesting thing is you op it opens up with you playing a sitar Right, there was a bunch of those shows. Yeah, yeah, like uh, you know, as, as soon as uh, you know the Shadrachs got the number two song in Vancouver, of course, the band broke up. So yeah. we played with various versions of that around, and then I went into um, just just playing in clubs, you know, just uh, yeah. as, as, a, as a pickup player. Okay. And um, I had known both Terry and Susan, and I, you know, it may have been Susan, it may have been Terry that phoned me. And I uh, said, uh, you know, we got this uh, gig. It's just a little trio gig with, uh, you know, um, Terry and and, and uh, singing and playing guitar and me singing. Do you want to come and play guitar with us? And I said, sure, okay. And it was yeah. it was a very weird um, little trip because hmm. uh, suddenly I'd gone from playing in info bands to uh, you know this little trio. But it was fun, and yeah. uh, and and, uh, and we kept doing that. Now at the same time as this, I was. I, I developed a real love of Indian classical music. Okay. And uh, I had um, been, uh, I, think, I think I beat, you know, like when we were at Orkans, um, you know, Shadrachs was, was the house band, the Dirty Cells and Orkans for a while. That's many great players, Eddie Patterson, all these people. And I beat out Eddie Patterson by about 20 minutes buying the only sitar that was, <laughs> that was in oh. Vancouver in a huh. little, little gift shop in in. Gastown. So anyways, I started playing that and started really, really enjoying the music, but I realized I would love to, uh, love to find a tabla player, but how am I going to, 
how am I going to do that? Yeah. And one day I got a call uh, from a friend of mine who was going to VCC, not Clive, but this other guy and said, um, you know, there's an East Indian family uh, playing a noon hour gig here at VCC. And they have this young guy who's playing the tablets really good. You got to get down here. So I went, what the heck? Jumped in my car, raced down there like mad, just in time to watch the last of the equipment go into their van and see them drive drive away. <laughs> so I was uh, kind of heartbroken. Uh, what am I going to do? And I'm standing around. There's this this other Indian fellow was there. And I said, oh, gee, I'm so sorry. I, I, I miss these people playing. I I hear they had a tablet player. And he was saying, yes, that would be Satwant. And I said, oh, I'd love to get to meet him sometime. So he said, um, sure, by all means, I can introduce you, but you have to come to some of my meditation classes first. So oh. I'm going, <laughs> really? Um, so, okay, I'll do anything to get to meet this tablet player. So I went to a couple of meditation classes, which was interesting, but not really my thing. Yeah. And he said to him, uh, okay, when does the introduction come? And uh, sort of forced that along. And uh, I went and I got to meet the family. And uh, they were just so incredibly wonderful. I mean, they just took me right in. Yeah. So here's this weird hippie uh, who has an interest in Indian classical music. And yeah, we got along really well. And then Satwant and I would uh, grab a bunch of incense and uh, they would let us go down at night and we would play in in the temple, you know, and I was trying mm. to learn all these ragas and things and Satwant yeah. was very, very patient and we had lots of fun. Yeah. So that's how I got into the sitar thing. But Terry and Susan really got into the sitar thing. I mean, as, as our little trio gigs, uh, you know, I, I, was, I was playing, you know, Paper Sun by the Traffic and, and, and various things like that. And they both sort of embraced that Indian uh, Eastern vibe. In, in yeah, well, and I mentioned that when I talked to her too, because it was kind of cool. It was different listening to the music, and and the drums weren't overpowering. They were just so they filled everything up, and the rhythms were beautiful. And it was just a really cool, sort of different thing. It worked great. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest Keith Sharp from the iconic Canadian music magazine Music Express. Uh, Keith has a lengthy list of accomplishments. It is an integral part of the Canadian musical landscape with countless stories to tell. So we look forward to hearing some of them. So you had an interest in music, but it must have been somewhat of a circuitous, a circuitous route for you to come from England, to end up in Canada, to end up in Calgary as a sports writer. Yeah. And then to make the bridge to uh, to music, I guess it was full circle for you at that point. Well, it was. I, I, I emigrated with my family when I was 14. Mm -hmm. And in England, my two big passions were music and, and football, soccer. You know, we came over and, you know, we, we emigrated, landed in a place called Sault Ste. Marie. And then we moved to a small place called Elliot Lake. And I started writing for the local newspaper in Elliot Lake. Then I went to college in North Bay. And then I got a job in Calgary. And, I, you know, yeah. I, I was like just, <laughs> just, just over 17 when I started working at the Calgary Herald. And I was a junior sports writer there so i got all the stuff that all the senior people didn't want and one of those uh, assignments was the calgary stampede rodeo but i mean when you're actually covering the actual rodeo itself i mean you're tromping through you know bull crap all bloody day yeah. talking to all these texan cowboys who listened to my accent and just shook their heads and walked away like what the hell's this british guy doing talking about rodeo so after about three years of doing that, 
Um, I want to, you know, I was going to do the road and the stampede again, but I thought, can I do something different? So I said, well, why don't I do the entertainment stuff at night? And, mm-hmm. and the entertainment guy was a guy called Eugene Chadburn, who was a strange guy because he didn't really like pop music. And he was mm-hmm. always trashing stuff. And he went, yeah, fine, go ahead and do it. So there's a band called Stampeders who, uh, you know, were from Calgary and they've done well in, in Toronto with, you know, Sweet City Woman and all yes. those songs. And they were coming back to Calgary to headline at the Stampede Rodeo uh, night show. So I, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cover the night shows. So I did like a full interview with the Stampeders. And the odd thing was they performed on the Thursday, but the story wasn't running into the newspapers until the Saturday. Hmm. So fine. But the problem was that this Eugene Chadburn guy reviewed the Stampeders and absolutely trashed them. Oh, I mean, you don't do that. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, trashing Bruce Springsteen in New Jersey or something. You <laughs> just don't do that. But what they did was, because it was such a, you know, severe trashing, they pulled my story out of the Saturday newspaper and had me call the manager, Mel Shaw, and explain why he got pulled. And, of course, I did. And he kind of understood. But I was determined to get that story published. So the Calgary Herald is the Western Bureau for Canadian Press, which is the national news service that you know, services all the newspapers. So I gave the lady at uh, Canadian Press my story. I said, here, you know, find someone else. You know, someone else will run with it. And she got back to me two weeks later and says, 14 national newspapers ran your story. The wow. only one that didn't was the Calgary Herald. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my kind of impetus to to, to, to launch Music yeah. Express because I want somehow, some way, I'm going to get the story published. Yeah. And again, at the time, because all the record companies based in Calgary didn't like this Eugene Chadburn guy, they thought, hey, you know, we can get into the Herald through Keith Sharp. So a guy called Joe Kelly, who was the guy from Kelly's, uh, sorry, Joe Thompson from Kelly's Records out west, a big uh, western chain, said, okay, well, we're, we have a big promotion called Rocktober, so why don't you do a magazine and we'll publish it, you know, we'll stick it in the uh, full bag it in, in our, on yeah. all our stores. So it right. So through the month of July and August and September, I interviewed everybody that came through Calgary. I did, you know, Olivia Newton-John and uh, Backman Turner Overdrive and Trooper and you know, I, I even went up to Ed, yep. uh, Edmonton to interview The Who. And I was supposed mm. to interview The Who, but Keith Moon went and trashed the the, uh, the uh, suite at the venue, then went back to the hotel and trashed the suite at the hotel. So that got cancelled. So all I could do was a review. Oh. But again, I did all these stories. It was going to be a one-off just to get that Stampede story published. And I think we ran about 10,000 copies. And say Joe Thompson put it in like all the... Western Canadian record shops, and he came back and said, "Yeah, it went well. I you know, love it." You know, uh, and yeah. I'd sent some of the copies out to the record companies in Toronto because Ken Graydon, the guy at Polygram in, in Calgary, said, "Should service tell people in Toronto what you're doing?" And I did that, and then I was getting phone calls back from Toronto going, "Hey, love it. When's the next one coming out?" Like, <laughs> next one? Oh my god. I, you know, yeah. I never thought about that, but I thought, okay, well, it could be a nice little hobby. 
yeah. on the side from working at the Herald. So I, I did that for a couple of years and it grew and grew and grew. And in uh, 1980, we moved to Toronto and set up shop in Toronto. The timing was perfect, you know, 1976. I mean, that CRTC ruling had just come in where all the radio stations had to play 30% Canadian content and they couldn't just play Anne Murray and Gordon Lightfoot records all day. They had to come up yeah. with something. That's why all these independent labels popped up and, uh, you know, and, and, and things were happening. And uh, because of who we were, I was being invited to, to kind of talk to everybody. And there's some really in- interesting stories. Um, in my book, I talk about meeting Brian Guy Adams for the first time. Yes, you do, yeah. And uh, the, the story there was um, our first proper office for Music Express was uh, at the front of a sound and lights company called Northern Sound and Lights. And they had, you know, the full, you know, sound system in the back. And of course, when bands traveled from like Vancouver to Calgary in the winter, they had to cross the Rockies. So they never brought their gear with them because it's too dangerous. So they'd come to right. Calgary, rent the gear in, you know, Calgary, go and do their world tour of Saskatchewan or somewhere, <laughs> and then come back. And one of the things they did was they put a little concert on just for the industry in the warehouse when they brought the gear back. And one of the bands was Sweeney Todd. And I knew Nick Gilder from the original Roxy Roller, but he'd left and they'd replaced him with this other guy called Brian Guy Adams, who I didn't really know much about him, but they were going to perform at the warehouse. So myself and my partner, Connie Coons, showed up. So we wanted to protect our stuff more than anything. Because all these people would be wandering around our office watching the show. And we get there, and there's this kid walking around. And Connie, my partner, goes up to him and says, excuse me, Sumber, isn't it past your bedtime? That was Brian Guy Adams. And he was like 17 at the time. And he just pointed to the poster on the wall, and it was that famous poster of him with the band, you know, the gas lights and everything. So we got talking to him, and he had a really nice kid. And uh, he said, you know, he just he was at school, writing songs. He'd just been working with his band. And then um, uh, later on that year, uh, there was the first and thankfully last ever Canadian Disco Awards in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And again, it's Ken Graydon, because Polygram had everybody on the disco scene. So you got to come out to Vancouver. So we went out to Vancouver for the, to cover the disco was and they had bands like the Bee Gees and Village People playing. And I walked into the uh, awards. It was in the afternoon at a Holiday Inn on Seymour Street. And this young guy walks up to me. He's got a suit and tie on. And he says, ah, Mr. Sharp. And I went, Brian Guy Adams. But he was, looked totally different. And, oh. and uh, I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I've got, I've got a, a, a single up for a, a disco award. It's called Let Me Take You Dancing. So I watched it, and I was talking to the, uh, the publisher for A&M, and they were going, oh, yeah, we, love, we like this kid as a kind of a publishing thing. We're not sure about him being a, a live talent, but, uh, you know, you never know. And, of course, suddenly he becomes huge. And I, I had a, a writer in Vancouver called Tom, uh, Tom Harrison who wrote yep. for the Vancouver uh, newspapers. So I said, well, Tom, you know, interview him. So we interviewed him, and, and then we'd moved to Toronto, and he came to Toronto and did this – you know, like a debut gig at the El Macambo. Then the following day, he played at another place, the Jarvis House, and there's like 10 people supping on the drinks, and he's there with his band, and he's up on the stairs, and he, you know, he said, hey, come and join me. And when I had a drink with him on the stairs, and I felt sorry for him, because every no record company people there, just him and his band and 10 people. Oh, yeah, poor kid. 
But anyway, yeah. well, I, you know, I've had a history of working with Brian and it was with him on his first US tour and I was in Europe yeah. with him with uh, when he played in West Berlin and East Berlin. Hmm. So there you go, Canada. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My guest, Mr. Zero from the iconic Canadian band, The Kings, founding member of the band on guitar and vocals and songwriting. So thanks for joining me today, Mr. Zero. How are you? Yeah, doing good. Uh call me zero that's what everybody calls me <laughs> well i was gonna ask you about that like where, where did the the zero name come from and then the mr zero wh- how did that all come about well it was a long uh story but back in the old distant olden days uh we saw bands like you two with all these dumb names and we thought we would do that too and so we came up with a okay. few names and zero just came about from let's just say that it wasn't a compliment and <laughs> it, it was thrust upon me so yes but then it stuck, so you kept it. Kind of stuck, and then I just put Mr. Zero on after that. And, uh, yes, because you got to get some respect in there, right? <laughs> so everyone likes to have a hook or some kind of handle, and, and you got one, so that's awesome. It just is what it is. I'm kind of pretty ambivalent about it at this point. And I watched your, your uh, documentary, the, the King's Anatomy of a One-Hit Wonder, and, and a couple things struck me. One is uh, it really was a group effort. Like you guys worked together. You were you were the quintessential sort of band that like you were kind of bouncing off each other and working things out together, which was cool. I mean, that's what a band is supposed to be, right? It really was like that, I think, for us. You know, all for one and one for all. And then it kind of it got messed up with our uh, our drummer around after the second album and sometime in eighty three around there. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes there gets to be camps in a band. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yep. These these people are in a camp and these people are in a camp. And Dave and I and Sonny were in this camp and our drummer was in this other camp. And it was like, mm-hmm. we all came up together from nowhere we, by working our buns yeah. off. And yeah. now you want to be with these other people? You know, it was like, and then it reached ahead. It actually in Penticton when we were on tour out there, he just decided to quit after this oh. thing happened. And we said, well, all right. So well, the interesting thing, though, for, for me, like looking at your timeline and then watching that, that uh, anatomy of a one-hit wonder, like, like you, your rise really was meteoric. I mean, yeah, yes, you, you put in your time, but then once you got that hit song, I mean, I, I saw the video in 1980, you played at Heat Wave in Toronto, you're playing for 50,000 people, right? I mean, so, so one day you're playing clubs, you're trying to record, and then within a very short period of time, you know, you're... You're on Dick Clark's American Bandstand. You, you. I mean, that must have been a rush, right? Things start coming at you at 100 miles an hour. It, uh, it is like that. I mean, you just try to keep your head down and focus on playing and promoting that new album. And and that's when we had Dave and I were sharing an apartment. It was actually Bob Ezrin's old apartment in Toronto. And one day, I think there was a knock on the door, and there was this guy there, and. He said, do you know what you're doing? And, you know, like there's a buzz about you guys in the States. He'd actually come up from the U.S. and he was a fledgling manager named Randy Phillips. And uh, and he said, you know, I think I can help you guys make some money. And so we, we talked to him and we realized that the Canadian team that we had were out of their depth. Because like we were, you know, on a major U.S. label. And like you say, it was all very fast and everything. But that's that's what happens when we decided to, to go with Randy and keep our original guys too, you know, that's when we started to see a better result. And you guys had a genuine billboard hit. I mean, you were, you were there, right? A hundred percent. Yep. 
did you not move to LA at one point? Did you move yeah. down to the States? Well, we, we worked, we were living in LA to uh, try to get our stuff together for our third album. And then, uh, okay. then that's kind of what happened was that the, you know, people get shuffled in and out of record companies and the advocates that we had there were kind of moving on at that point. And so we had no real yeah. champion of the label. So that yeah. kind of ended that deal. And then we got a deal with uh, uh, Capital Canada with Dean Cameron, who was a good guy who's, you know, since passed away. But, um, you know, he's the guy that broke, you know, Glass Tiger and Tom Cochran. Mm. And he was a real, you know, real guy who was willing to spend money on Canadian bands. And, and I think, you know, I take the blame that I didn't establish a, a good enough relationship with him. Yeah. Like after our second album, we were so uh, gun shy, I guess, that we wanted to, our, our third effort to be you know totally under our control and all that but you got to realize i think sometimes that that it's a team effort and you got to be on the team with the label because they're the people that are going to promote you and if you can get a good relationship with them they'll go to the ends of the earth for you back at the time there was a payola scandal and all that which you know sort of raises its ugly head every few years or something it seems but you know, people don't realize that that's the way the business has been run and has always been run, and that's the way it's still run to this day, you know? Well, you know, that's a good point because, you know, the payola scandal was was a big thing and a big hullabaloo, and you can't go and pay the DJs, but they just made it one step removed and had independent music promoters. So you had to stroke them, and, you know, if you don't write them big checks, you don't get your songs played or they get stalled. And they deliver. Yeah, yeah, they do. I mean, it, it won't, it'll, it'll get you, like... Um, exposure it'll get you played you know but if the tune isn't there it's only gonna go so far you know it's an opportunity it costs money yes but if it's not they're not gonna make a hit out of a turd switching to glide got it got stalled because of the payola scandal of, of 1980 and with these independent guys like you're talking about with uh you know a few mm. names there's a book called hitman that's written about them. yeah i've got it right beside me read it yeah yeah well we're not mentioned in there but it was exactly that time period that, that we that that we were on the charts and going up yeah. like we got added to wls which is this uh the second biggest am station in the united states out of chicago when we got added we were actually in new york at that point uh, at the record company and you know, they broke out the vodka, Stoli, and all this other stuff. And we're like, we're such picks from the sticks, basically, let's face it. <laughs> so at the time, it was called a Clear Channel station. It was before the company was named Clear Channel. But Clear Channel, at the point, at that time, meant that, that it was a 50,000-watt AM station out of Chicago. But the regulations at that point, when, it, when nighttime came, because the AM signal goes so strongly at night, they actually dial back on the the, the the amount of watts you're allowed to put out, but it was a clear channel station, which meant that they were allowed to keep their broadcasting at 50,000 watts all night. And so they, you know, they would reach down to Texas and Alabama and Florida and, you know, Arizona, mm -hmm. Chicago, all over the place. And so when you got added on WLS, it was a big deal. And that was a big deal for us. And then when we were having brunch with our friend Rick in New York, uh, January of 2020, he said, you know, it's too bad about that payola thing because when you got WLS, I mean, that was a, a ticket to the top 10 on Billboard and it just stalled. But, you know, the good thing about it was, though, that, I mean, it was on pretty much every heavy AM, uh, I mean, FM station, every AM rock station and every major market all over the U.S. and Canada. 
Hmm. And that's how the business works. I mean, yeah. it costs money to make money. But yeah, but you were fortunate to have have such a strong song that that just couldn't be ignored in 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 some measure. I mean, it was going to get played somewhere by someone. Well, yeah, and and the other thing was because it was five and a half minutes long, they put switching the glide out on its own, which is two and a half minutes long, and it didn't really get anything. We were pressuring the record company to put out the segue, and that then when they did, that's when it started. The phones started to ring at the radio stations, and our friend. Yeah. Uh, a friend, the legendary Bob Stroud, who's a DJ in Chicago, he was at WMET at that point. He said the first time he heard it, you know, he just said, this is a hit. And I think that's what pretty much everybody had to say about it, because it's quite a unique piece. Yeah, it's, it's the kind of song everybody wants, there's no doubt about that. And and so the other curious question I had for you is, how did you categorize? You guys weren't new wave, really. I mean, you were kind of pop rock sort of new wave. How did you categorize yourselves? We've always been and will always be a rock band, plain and simple. When we started out, we were doing more prog rock type stuff. And then we thought, well, nobody's going to get into these seven-minute songs, so why don't we try to write some hits, you know, yeah. in the three or four or three-and-a-half-minute format. And so that's when we started doing that. And that's when things t- turned around for us as far as yeah. records and that. And when but they- you, were considered, you weren't considered new weight. I mean, I was, I was thinking of the Knack or the Cars. You well, know, you're kind of yeah. the Spoons. Well, we were in a way. I, I think that that was something that we just latched on to because we were kind of these, you know, long-haired, more rockers. And then we decided, well, let's cut our hair and get a little more of an image going and rock out a little more and this kind of thing. And so we started putting on more of a show. Like, uh, it was a lot of energy. And you guys were uh, really intense. Yeah. And that's all <laughs> just... Uh, you know, again, minimal equipment, just uh, the guitar straight into the amp. We just had a little organ and a mini Moog, and, you know, uh, it's all real on that on that uh, video. So we did the show, and then we went on tour, and then we realized that they were filming it. But what happened was that at the beginning of the concert, they went to all the different bands at Heat Wave and said, you know, Elvis Costello and Talking Heads and everybody. And they said, look, we got a film crew here. We're going to let us film it and we'll put it all in a vault and we'll figure out the legal stuff later. And they all said no, except for us and Teenage Head. Oh. We just said, sure, film it. We want it. And and so did Teenage Head. And, uh, and then we went on and kept doing what we were doing. And it wasn't until, you know, years later when things had sort of quieted down a lot, I started thinking about that uh, heat wave thing. And then... Um, I somehow found the name of the, the video company that they did commercials and all sorts of stuff that had the film crew that shot it and then found the number and talked to the guy and um, he actually said, you know, you're pretty lucky that uh, we were cleaning out our warehouse last week and we had a, you know, dumpster outside. We were throwing all this old footage in and we went by your stuff on the shelf and we thought, well, okay, we'll keep that. Wow. So it was almost a week away from being in the dumpster and... And the, he gave us the footage, so I'm the owner of that, including the uh, the Teenage Head stuff. Today I'm honored to have as my guest Michelle McAdory. And Michelle is perhaps best known as lead singer for the band Crash Vegas, but she did stuff before that and after as well. I think I have been singing just since I can remember. People around me singing, just music was definitely a strong influence growing up. Radios, records can't imagine you know life without music i think so many times that music it's so intimate you know uh we have so many memories connected with songs and whether it's because of a you know a specific moment or a time a person 
um, yeah, it's profound. So did you play instruments too, or did you just primarily sing? Um, I'd say primarily I was always singing, singing to records, singing to radio, trying to figure out harmonies, learning things just that way by ear. And it wasn't until yeah. later, really, uh, that I started, like, uh, beyond my teens, where I really thought, okay, I've got to start trying to figure out mostly guitar, little keyboards to try to figure out how to uh, accompany my song ideas, mm. the melodies. Because pr- primarily for me, it's it's so much about melodies and words yeah. and uh, trying to figure out how to support that in some way and help that kind of. I guess, come into some kind of form. It's funny taking songs through the different stages and, and I write, you know, alone. Um, but then I also write with people or if I've written alone, I can't wait to then get with at least another person or more than one other person to start to play that song and then yeah. see what's going to happen. And just that energy and excitement. Then the next stage is when you finally get to play it live and yeah. To show that song, uh, you know, share it with people and and sort of, you know, feel, get the response. Will they like it? Won't they? What's going to happen? You went to England when you were quite young too. Like, I mean, I was over in England and studying, but I, and then just the whole scene there, just, I found it so, I guess, bewitching. Um, yeah. I was such a music fanatic. Like, I already like i'd seen so many amazing bands in toronto like big shows small shows i'd sneak into places or or you know go go rightly so like legally but if you could sneak in to a club uh we would try to do that so i was fanatical about music and then to be in london um and there were great uh, musical newspapers um melody maker uh, the NME, New Musical Express. And what was so sort of mind-blowing to me is they had all these ads in the back of the papers for fellow, you know, we're looking for a singer, we're looking for a guitar player. Right. And yeah. so I actually answered an ad because I had oh, started cool. writing songs. And I thought, you know, I'm going to try this. And um, so, yeah, it worked out. So uh, the first, you know, I, I answered this ad and we started this band. Um and also I had an experience over there, um, I think these two things. So, so answering that ad, but also I went to Spain and on the plane back from Spain, there was a layover, you know, people were having a little bit to drink, waiting, mm-hmm. and I meet this woman named Kirsty McCall. I kind of heard of Kirsty, but not too well because I was still you know, I, I wasn't fully immersed yet in all of the sort of English scene. And her father had been a quite a well-known uh, musician and songwriter. What year yeah. would that have been? Like early 80s. Like, is that okay. 82 or 83? Just fooling around. We really hit it off. We're making each other laugh. Nice. We're doing weird accents and jokes. And then we're kind of singing. Like, it was just because we had quite a, a wait until our plane was going to leave. And she said to me, you know, you need to come into the recording studio and do some background vocals for me. Nice. And I was like, wow, okay, sure. I had no idea what that meant. And so I did. And that she just sort of, it was the first time I'd ever recorded and she just introduced me to this whole world. And so, yeah, I sang on this record of hers cool. and she she yeah. dubbed my, she, my name for that record was Blanche McAdory. 
And uh, that the song that came off that record was There's a Guy Works Down the Chip Shop Swears He's Elvis, which was <laughs> a, a kind of hit at the time in London, in England. So we did a bunch, bunch of songs. And, and really, it was just from there. I got the bug. So then you had you joined another band when you were over there, the Correct Spelling Band? Well, you know, that wasn't the name of the band. Um, the band actually started before that. It was called cold fish is it? exactly and <laughs> okay. um and, and in fact i met another guy who who i'd first started recording with that he was another guy who amazing and is no longer with us but a guy named speedy king hmm. and he had um a huge hit with this song called something in the air with thunderclap newman i don't know if you recall no. that song no i do no. great song so he i'd met him and and he started recording this band i had he did our first demos and then from there we got this record deal and and then we worked with Midjur from Ultravox and and then this single comes out and I remember we were all a bit shocked at how it sounded because yeah. it was very well produced in a certain way sounded very much like something Midge would make but it didn't yeah. we, we probably sounded a bit punkier um that was love me today yeah, that was Love Me Today, the song that Midge produced. And yeah. um, and then later it gets released in Canada, but they changed the name of the band. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff. And that was kind of one of my first introductions to the dark side of oh. the music business. Yes. Well, I reading down your, your dossier here, I can see. I was going to ask you about that because, man, the, the, the business people ruin the business for the artists, right? Oh my God. I mean, I still don't even get publishing from that song. Like I was oh. taken to the cleaners, like literally it's oh. like I was signed to Chapel Music. I was signed to CBS Records and it was, it was like a classic thing. And funny because Speedy kept warning me, you know, watch out for the sharks. And they're, yeah. he, and I'm, I kicked myself after it's like, yeah, why did we, we should have held out. We probably, you know, could have got a bigger record deal and, Hmm. done it with speedy and not you know anyways it was part of my uh early education of music and and definitely introducing me to the aspects of music business or you know that really have nothing to do with music and in fact can hmm. kind of pollute the experience or or one has to figure out how to navigate that so that you can still i guess feel excited and want to be playing music and either not get totally ripped off and yeah. all of that stuff that's what kills people in this business and and you know you have these heights of success and you have these moments where you just feel like you got the world with a fence around it and then you feel like a shell afterwards because you realize you just were not treated properly yeah and isn't that a learning you know i mean it's interesting too just even what the notion of success is because i know i've i've met enough people that seemingly have success and and it doesn't necessarily have to be just even in music and what is success and how do we define it and and what is it like what's what's a good life and, and that's the key question isn't it i think so so you had an experience in england then you moved back to toronto and then you started writing songs with with greg keeler yeah exactly um greg and i are just hanging out and i'd showed him all this writing and you know some songs and things and he's like yeah let's do it let's let's start this band and he had come back from New York. And I guess we were both suffering a bit of a similar thing where we'd been in these big cities 
and they've been so inspiring and full of so much, but they also exacted quite the price in the sense of how do you survive there and have time to make your music, you know, rents high, you're working all the time, you're trying to figure it yeah. out. Or And yeah. so Toronto just felt a bit freer and more open in the sense that you could work, but you could, it wouldn't cost you everything and have time to start pursuing your band or bands yeah. for Greg, you know, it would be his second because he'd come back so, from New York. Yeah. And started blue rodeo. And then he started crash Vegas with me. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous liner notes guests. Don't forget. You can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for liner notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers until next time. I'm Dan here. 